this is part 11, uh, and we are going to finish out, uh, Lord willing, First uh, Peter here tonight, and then actually, uh, Lord willing too, in the next couple of weeks, we'll forge ahead into the book of Second Peter as we get a good view of, I think, the man Peter through these letters, as we have everywhere been sort of uh, pointing out and drawing out that these letters are the outworkings, so to speak, of Peter's life. Uh, throughout this first letter of First Peter, as Peter's writing to these churches, we've noted that uh, Peter is really writing his life out. Uh, there are a lots of instances where you can draw parallels from passages here in this letter to different passages, perhaps in the Gospels or in the book of Acts. Uh, and to say that this letter is Peter's heart on display. He's in a very real sense, pouring out his heart to these churches in order to build them up, build them up as he calls them in verse uh, uh, verse 2 of chapter 1, the elect of God, those who are perfectly and, uh, and powerfully chosen by God to be his uh, church in the world. And that's really his heart. His heart is for these churches, for these who are now sort of taking up the charge, so to speak, carrying the, the torch of faith, we might say, in a fallen and a broken world. That they too would be built up, strengthened, uh, and that they would be uh, encouraged by the finished work of Jesus. And that, therefore, also that encouragement would uh, build into how they would live uh, in light of that finished work. That's really what this letter is about. The finished work of Jesus and how it affects us, how it changes us, how it uh, encourages us to live in light of that finished work. Uh, and as we've noted throughout, everywhere in this first letter, uh, Peter is very clear about what is to be expected. <laughs> Uh, especially chapters two, uh, chapters one, two, and four, I would say, uh, Peter's very clear about what to expect. <laughs> expect suffering. <laughs> expect hardship. Expect some really tough times. Verse 12 of chapter 4 makes that clear. He says, Beloved friends, brothers, sisters, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. Don't be shocked. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be so fraught with emotion over what's happening here. This is not unusual. If you go back, he's paralleling what he talked about in chapter 1. Verse 6 of chapter 1 says the same thing. In this you greatly rejoice, he says, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying all of this is for a purpose. It's proving you. As gold is proven in the fire, so you too are proven in these, if I dare say, unprecedented times. You are proven in moments like these. It's not unusual. Don't be surprised. And what is needed, as uh, I think he hinted at, at back at chapter 4, just to get us into this, uh, what's needed precisely in these times is brotherly love. Notice verse 7 of chapter 4. He says, the end of all things is at hand. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, doesn't that feel very relevant? <laughs> the end of all things is that, is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. 
and above all things have love. Not just love. I love how he says it. He says, and have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Not just be charitable, not just have love, fervent, voracious love for your brother and sister in Jesus. That's sort of the, the summation, I think, of what he's been talking about, as we've noted in chapters 2 and 3, as he's talking about what is the, the character and what is the sort of description of those in the church. It's that submissive humility as they, uh, as they submit to all these various spheres of life. And where is that most chiefly and most uniquely seen? It's in that submissive love to your brother and sister. Fervent love, as he says here. This is what's needed. And I think throughout all of this, as we've tried to highlight, if we've, if we've tried to draw your mind to, I think Peter's mind is being drawn to Jesus throughout all of this. He's, I think, working. <laughs> I just picture Peter as he's writing this letter. He's just working through all of those different moments in his life. And he's, he's racking his brain for all of those little, little moments that he spent with Jesus. And he's being reminded of them. And he's just fervently writing out what this church should stand on. What this church can hope in. His life is the backdrop of these letters. And I think that's clear from this conclusion. Notice verse 6 again. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him. For he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by their brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, and strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory. Be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you, all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. I think he, you could, I, I read these words, and they're not just closing words. They're closing words of a dear, dear pastor, so to speak, to this church. He understands the task that is before them. He understands all of the hardship that is very imminent. It's on the doorstep, and perhaps it's even there now. Remember, as we said several weeks ago, what is raging all around them? Nero. Nero in Rome and his onslaught on the church. He understands very clearly the task that is before them as they are called to live out their faith in a world that is diametrically opposed to them. How radical then, to, as he says here, to submit to governing authorities in a way that honors Jesus and shows brotherly love. In a way, in a world that was so opposed to anything that has to do with Christianity. 
That was, in fact, uh, bringing them into places and executing for their faith. And here Paul is saying, stand fast. (laughs) You notice that? You can be confident. I love how he says that in verse 12. Exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. You can stand in this. You can be confident in it. I think he's assuring them that they wouldn't be alone in this task. This task that was before them, they're not going to be alone in it. The God of all grace was standing with them and was standing for them. Which is what I want to draw our attention to through three quick lessons here in this text. Talking about standing in this grace and who stands with us. Number one, I want you to notice, we're going to actually, uh, in a, I think it, it'll make sense when we, once we go through it, we're going to work through the text a little bit backwards. I want to start in verses 12 through 14 and work our way back to verse 6. Because I want you to notice, first of all, a lesson about rising. A lesson about rising. Notice verse 12 again. As he says, by Silvanus, our brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. You know, very often we are quick to pass over the openings and the closings of New Testament letters. Uh, I know very, (laughs) I will just confess to you that very often I do that uh, if I'm trying to get to a certain point, uh, especially if it's in like verse 3 of one of Paul's letters, because the first two verses are almost all the same. I'm Paul, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and yada, 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 we could say, but we can't just skip over those. Uh, he's actually packing in so much theology as we as we have noted even in this first letter, which Peter does. He packs a lot in in a short amount of time. And even here in the closing, he these are not just extraneous words, not just words that we can just gloss over and skip over uh, and just pretend that, you know, they don't really have something to say to us. This is a, a perfect example, I think, because especially verse 14 you know, as even as Peter is charging this church to greet one of the holy kiss, so to speak, and that seems so foreign and crazy, and we snicker like, Haha, we have to kiss each other. Um, you have to get at what he's getting at. Because <laughs> here he is calling this church to a specific kind of love. A love that is bound up in people who are bounded together for the same cause. Notice again verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. This to me reads like a summary, so to speak, of all of Peter's previous discussions when talking about brotherly love, especially inside the church. Those discussions of submission, of of service, of humility, of deference. Hospitality, as he talked about in chapter 4. This, I, I, you can't help but, uh, how could you greet one another that you have sort of a grudge against with this special type of love that he is here engendering um, without, with that in the way. If you have a grudge against someone, you're not going to be greeting them with this type of greeting, this type of welcome, this type of embrace. And here he's saying, you... You churches, 
in all these different areas. You are the elect of God. You are God's family. Greet one another as though you are God's family. You are in Christ Jesus. And you are to see others in the same manner that they are in Christ Jesus. Greeting them, embracing them with the same type of charity and peace that you were greeted and embraced by Christ himself. This to me speaks, (laughs) this speaks to me a lot. Because you, and maybe I won't, I, won't talk, I won't talk for you. I'll just say I am so prone to put myself in the center of my world. Maybe you can relate. I don't know. Maybe that's really foreign to you and you're super humble. But I'm so prone to put myself in the center of my world. As if all of my cares and wants and needs and desires, they take precedence over anyone else. That's why you can get mad when you're driving. Because apparently wherever you have to go is more important than wherever anyone else has to go. Your Starbucks trip is way more important than wherever that other person's going. Or Eagle's Wind or wherever you're going to get your coffee. Bamsey Coffee in Shemokin. Wherever you're going, it's obviously more important. So you have to get around that person. (laughs) I think Peter's words here force us out of that. Peter's words force us out of this idea that we are the centers of our worlds. That all of our needs are more important than anyone else's. As he's saying there, embrace your brothers and sisters in the love and the peace that Christ himself has embraced you with. Why? Because God's work in this world is way bigger than you. God's work is what he's doing is way grander than your little life. So that person, greet them. Embrace them with the type of love that only comes from a God who is love. That's also why I like these remarks in verses 12 and 13. As he says, By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. I love, though, uh, as Peter's here saying that he is being helped by Silvanus to write this letter. I like how he includes that little, that little note in there. I've written to you briefly. (laughs) I could have written a lot more, but I wrote this short little letter, (laughs) this short little treatise that's not, you know, super long. It's not super in-depth just to encourage you. (laughs) I think he's hinting at there's much more that I wanted to say, but I had I was short on time, maybe short on parchment. (laughs) And he's I love what he includes in here. He includes a lot of details, a lot of sort of really uh, proper places and people, Sylvanus, Mark, Babylon. Again, to hint at the fact that what is going on in the faith is not only honing in on where they are. It's much bigger than that. There's a work of God that is going on even outside your little kingdom. She who is in Babylon. That's. My friends, is sort of a uh, allegorical sort of notation, most likely referencing the Church of Rome. Babylon was sort of a, a, an allegorical sort of term, a, a stand-in word that was used to kind of say everything that was opposed to godliness. 
And there was a church in a place that was entirely, utterly opposed to godliness. Most likely, he's talking about Rome there. And notice he says, he's hinting at this, that they are greeting you. They are elect just like you are. You all stand in the same grace of Christ. The same grace that has called you. That has snatched you out of darkness. And called you into his light. Here you are. You are standing together with them. God's grace marches on. Where you are and in Rome as well. He mentions Mark. Mark my son as he says. This is John Mark. The Mark who wrote your gospel. The Gospel of Mark. Silvanus is is actually just another uh, way you could name the guy Silas. The one who accompanied Paul on a number of his missionary journeys throughout the book of Acts. You get the picture? There's a togetherness that he's trying to remind them of. You are standing together. Together for the sake of Christ and because of Christ who is standing with them. And though you may be different, you've been brought out of different lives, out of different backgrounds. You're all enduring different seasons of trial per se. But you are standing together because you have all had the same, uh, the same grace which has brought you and borne you again unto uh, uh, verse 3 of chapter 1. That lively hope that has redeemed and resurrected you all. Therefore you're not alone. You're you're not alone in where you are. You can stand. You can rise in the true grace of of God here because of the, the host of witnesses, the cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 12, that is standing with you. They're standing with you to say this is the true grace of God. A lesson about rising. But notice verses 8 through 11. Here we have a lesson about resisting. A lesson about resisting. Notice verse 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion. Seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace. Who called us. To his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory in the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, as we are engaged, as we sort of, as he has here called this church out to, as you rise to make this sort of stand, so to speak, there is bound, there is going to be resistance. You likely know this. Allegiance to Christ means opposition from the world. They go hand in hand. Faith in Jesus means that you're going to have to fight something. That there's going to be something that is going to oppose you. Maybe it's even yourself. (laughs) There's going to be opposition. There's going to be resistance. Uh, The world doesn't like the truth of Christ. It is everywhere resistant Resistant to the authority and the grace and the truth of Jesus. Such is why these afflictions abound. And I think too why these words of Peter are so resonant for us. As he's noted there is a devil. 
A devil who is walking about. He's lurking. He's seeking whom he may devour. As he is calling him here a roaring lion. And these days. These days maybe Peter was actually thinking about a real lion. (laughs) But I think too he's also referencing a metaphorical perhaps lion. A symbolical one of what is coming. Of what is everywhere lurking for them. Of the falsehood that everywhere wants to devour the faith of the church. Our adversary is very much alive. Maybe you've, maybe you've felt that. That opposition. That antagonism for and against your faith. He would love nothing more than to, to devour it. The devil does this through a lot of subtle things, does he not? It's not always a very overt thing. This is the devil's work. It's usually something really subtle. Something like, something like believing, uh, some, uh, believing something that you see on the internet or something like that. It, or what have, it, There's a ton of different things. And everywhere what Satan is doing... He's seeking to devour your faith. He's seeking to make you believe that the ground of your faith is not solid. It's shaky at best. You stand on something that is more equivalent to quicksand than a solid rock. You don't have a sure foundation. Satan wants you to believe that. Such is why I think he's calling us here to be sober and vigilant. Basically, stay awake. Be on your guard. Because there's an enemy that wants to bring you down. That wants you to be negligent of your responsibility for Jesus. That wants you to be negligent of your responsibility to your neighbor. That wants you to be uh, basically useless for the grace of God. That you've been given in Christ Jesus. Which motivates your humble and hungry surrender for the things of God. He wants you to be so, uh, uh, so, so almost narcissistic that you're also negligent. And you're do, almost a do not. Nothing for him. This is what he's wanting. There are far too many, I would say this. There are far too many churchgoers who are napping in their faith. (laughs) They're not awake. They're not alert. This, I think, is happening in this moment right now. That's why there are hordes of people who are going away from the church. Because their faith was napping to begin with. It was already falling asleep. And Satan devoured it like that. Through a thing known as COVID-19. It's shaken the church to its core. And by church I mean the church universal. (laughs) The large church that is all around this globe. You see a sifting happening. Do you not? It's a scary thing. But I think it's a good thing in a lot of ways. It can really strengthen those as he is everywhere here saying. This is the whole point. He wants us to be perfect and established and strengthened and settled. You get the the picture? 
That through Jesus, he doesn't want you on shaky ground. He wants you on solid ground because this is Jesus. You can be sure of this. Don't worry about all the things that are surrounding you. The chaos, the confusion, the upheaval, all of the things, the scandals that make you believe that your ground is shaky, that your truth is not true, that everything that you have been told that you to believe that it's false, that you can't really stand on it. No, through Jesus, you stand on perfect, established, strong and settled ground. You can rely on it because of who this is. It is King Jesus. I get the sense through Peter's writing especially and, ever, and sometimes through Paul that you ever just want someone to, to believe what you're saying that you just wish you could just shake it into them? Just believe it. I get that sense through Peter. Imagine him being that sort of fiery, forceful type of guy. All right, he's wanting this church. Just believe what I'm saying. I'm telling you, this is true, he's basically saying. He, this is Jesus. You can be so sure of this. This, I, this just speaks to me a lot just because I, there's so many that we could, we could talk about. In my own life, and, and, and perhaps you know of others that have just kind of gotten uh, napping in their faith through the past 12 months or so. And they've kind of fallen away. Like, there's so many things that could come into your life that could make you doubt. Is this really true? Because someone else on the news is saying something totally different. <laughs> so obviously it's true. I read something over here that, you know, my uncle shared on Facebook. So obviously that has to be, it, it, it passed the fact check, so it has to be true. This is truth. The scriptures are truth. This is your solid ground. This is your rock. And I don't just mean to be sort of just rah, rah, cheery. I just mean to say, you can trust in this. Has been proven true for thousands of years, and for thousands of years after we are dead and gone, it'll still be true. It'll always be the only place where you can find a perfect, established, strengthened, and settled faith. I was just I was just chatting with Natalie about this a couple of days ago. That I think one of the things that has done more damage to the church than anything else is when preachers get up and make people question their assurance. You can be assured right now of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think there's sometimes we should do some introspection and, and examine ourselves, but... Let me, let me be so forthright in telling you, this is true. You can be assured that Jesus is true and he has died for your sins. There's nothing now more that you need to do for them. You are free to live in the grace of God, to stand in the grace of God, and to everywhere exemplify the grace of God through your lives. And that's not, we don't have to like be nitpicking our faith. There, um, I think there was this Dutch reformer who said, I'm going to totally botch this quote, so please don't pretend this is verbatim. But he basically is talking about the, 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 uh, the farmer who is always digging up a seed is never going to see growth. 
Which is also, he's making the point that the Christian who is always trying to give himself assurance of his faith is never growing in the faith that he can be assured of. You can be sure of this. You can be absolutely sure that Jesus has cleansed you. You are standing in grace, as, Paul is saying, as Peter is saying here, the true grace of God, which perfects, establishes, strengthens, and settles you. Which also, as he is here saying in verse 9, it allows you and empowers you to resist steadfast in the faith. Notice verse 9. Resist this adversary. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Again, he's calling back that you aren't alone in this sort of uprising uh, for Jesus. You are resisting with many others who are in the same boat. (laughs) They are sharing in the same sufferings that you're experiencing. This is a call to arms. A summoning to withstand in the evil day, so to speak. Why? Because of the sake of Christ. Because they are not resisting in their own power. The church here is called to resist steadfast in the faith precisely because Christ alone stands with them. Precisely because of who is standing in the gap with them and for them. It is Jesus We stand with him because he's standing for us. He has already stood for us. (laughs) He's already taken your place, stood in the gap on your behalf, and come out victorious. I love that promise in John 16. Let me just read it. You don't have to go there. But just remember John 16.33. I love this verse. Jesus is talking to his disciples. These things I have spoken to you that in me... You may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I think Peter is thinking about that. (laughs) In the world you're going to have tribulation and fire and suffering and sorrow. But with Jesus you can have peace because he's overcome that already. He's overcome all of that already. Therefore, as the church, we are rising, so to speak, to resist out of the assurance of guaranteed victory. That's what I love about the scriptures. You know, the the summary of the Bible, Jesus wins. You can be sure of that. I wish I could know how Jesus is going to win. And the timeline, you know, of all the things, maybe you have your beliefs regarding the timeline of all the end times events. We're all going to find out at the same time <laughs> what it's going to look like. I just know what the end, end of all that is. The end, ultimate end, is Jesus wins and he is king. I'm just going to stand in that. <laughs> I don't mean that to be trite. I don't mean that to just be dismissive of sort of your light momentary affliction, as Paul says. Paul knew. Peter knew the task. The only thing that will get you through this light momentary affliction is knowing of what you can be sure of. Of knowing where you can find peace that is perfect and established and strengthened and settled. (laughs) 
in the one who has glory and dominion over everything forever. (laughs) Jesus. He assures you of victory. What a blessing to rest in Christ alone. To stand in the true grace of God. Assured of that salvation. Assured of that victory. Now and in eternity forever. That's the only place where you can find rest. And that brings me to the last point. So we had a lesson about rising. And a lesson about resisting. And lastly, notice in verses 6 and 7. A lesson about resting. Notice verse 6. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. This, I think, is the most important lesson of all. This one right here. I think that's why I wanted to examine it last. Because humble yourselves, that little two-word phrase, is, I think, the keynote of this whole letter. Humble yourselves because of the one who chose you, the one who redeemed you, the one who saved you, the one who has now called you into this. Humble yourselves before your brothers because they too have been called and redeemed and saved. All of those things. Humble yourselves. Evidence that by serving them. But primarily before God we are called to be humble knowing that this God is the Lord of all things. His kingdom goes on forever and ever. All those promises uh, that God gave to the people of Israel that there was going to come a kingdom uh, whose dynasty would never end is talking about Jesus. His dynasty is never going to come to, a, to an end. In spite all of the power and the sovereignty and the might that God has, he cares about you. I love that. Verse 7. Casting all your care upon him. Why? He cares for you. There's much. If you were to let yourself go, so to speak. There's much that you and I could be anxious about. There's a lot. I've confessed to you multiple times. And I'm not, I I should, maybe I should be ashamed. I don't know, but... uh, there was multiple times last year where I got super anxious. What are we going to do in the church? What are we going to do if this or that happens or that happens? And what's always, it was always about things that haven't happened yet. Isn't that often how worry works? It's about things that haven't happened and may not happen, may never happen. But they might happen and so therefore I'm worrying about them. And I'm that type of person who just like dwells on things and sits in them. That can be good because it allows me to think deeply, but it also could be bad because it allows me to think deeply about things that haven't happened yet. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff. That's such a non-specific word, but I think it's a good word. There's a lot of stuff that we can have cares about, burdens about, worries about. But what better news can you think of Then the good news that the Lord of all things is interested in the things that you are concerned about. That's what that word is there implying. He cares for you. He's interested in where you are. He's interested in your days. He's concerned for where you are and how you are doing. (laughs) 
You see, if we don't humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, as he is saying here, if we do not leave our anxiety with him, then we are refusing to leave it with the only one who can do anything about it. Leave your, your cares with him. Why? Because your God has already come, overcome everything. Therefore, you can stand freely and strongly and faithfully in the grace of God in the evil day. Precisely because he has already overcome the world. Humble yourself in, in front of the one who has already overcome everything. If we don't do that, we'll be more prone to put all those cares on our shoulders. We're really good at weighing ourselves down with cares that we have no business caring about. Maybe I should say that we have no ability to care for because we're not strong enough. That's when people fracture and crack and break under the pressures. Pressures of things that God is so ready and willing to take off of them. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from all those things that you're putting on yourself. All of the cares and worries and things that you fret over. God is bigger than all of that. He's better than all of that, and he has already overcome all of that. Therefore, humble yourself and cast your care on him, the one who has already vanquished all of your foes. The things that we fear right now, he's already overcome them. I love those. All, I remember I was, I was going through um, those sermons. Uh, I was reading through one of those sermons that I wrote for referencing for something else. And um, from Joshua. You may not remember this, but several months ago I preached from Joshua chapters 11, 10, or 11 12, and 13. If you don't remember what those chapters are about, they are some pretty boring chapters, if I'm just going to be blunt. (laughs) Because all they do is say the Israelites went here and they beat these people and then they went here and they they conquered these people. And it's just conquest after conquest, victory after victory, all that kind of stuff. And then God has the audacity to say in chapter 13 that Joshua's conquests aren't over, that he still has more fighting to do. And then from chapters 13 all the way through chapter 21, he tells, he proceeds to tell Joshua, here's how you can divide up all of the territories, even the territories that they haven't even overcome yet. It's as good as if it's already done. He's basically saying, go ahead, Joshua, count the chickens before, count your chickens before they hatch. Because with me, it's as good as already done. And that's the beautiful promise of those victories is that God was standing with them and for them every single time. In Joshua chapter 10 and chapter 11, there's this beautiful verse where God gives the captain of his host, Joshua, the promise that go out because I have delivered this enemy, uh, insert enemy name there, into your hands already. And you're going to slay them as if they were one man. (laughs) Before they even drew their swords for battle, they were given a guarantee of victory. You've been given a guarantee of victory. A guarantee Jesus wins. So withstand in this day. Stand. 
Resist together with those that you are called to live with. Your neighbors, your friends, your fellow church members that go to other congregations. We stand with them knowing that God's work is bigger than our little lives. And we can stand in the true grace of God. uh, Perfect and strengthened and established and settled because of who this God is. The one whose dominion is forever and ever. He stands for us. And I'm so, I'm so grateful that we can stand with him. This is Jesus, your King. Let us pray.